just as so you'll know, uh, my normal microphone, the cable, well, the Lord called the cable home this week. And we ordered a new one, but it didn't come in. And this is a microphone that, A, I don't usually use, and it's more sensitive than the other one. So if we blow you out sometimes, we apologize for that. We're just doing the best we can. We're glad you're here. We've said that already, but I say it again. And I hope and trust that, as I've said, when you leave here and tonight comes and you pillow your head for slumber, you'll say, you know, being in worship this morning with my friends and neighbors, it was worth all the effort I put forth to be there. Life is something that comes to us fast and furiously sometimes. And when life comes to us fast and furiously, there are moments in life that are embarrassing. Moments in life that cause us to be ashamed. Moments in life that cause us to blush. It's actually been said that man is the only animal of God's creation that can blush or needs to. As children, sometimes we feel embarrassed about our silly mistakes we make that everybody laughs at. As we get older and the older we get, the less embarrassed we become because everybody just excuses, well, you know, my, my, my boys and my daughters-in-law, they, you know, dad's old, bless his heart. And so, you know, you just, embarrassment's just something you learn to live with. When we're teenagers, we're embarrassed about our facial blemishes, our clothes, usually our parents. What we don't realize as teenagers that we're embarrassed about our parents, it works both ways. But we become parents, and then we're often embarrassed by our children and their behavior. Now, I read an interesting story the other day that tells us a little bit about what embarrassment looks like. It perfectly illustrates the kind of things that make us turn red and our face blush hot. It seems this little girl came home from school. And she had a tear in her pants, and her mother was quite angry with her. She had done this too often. And the mother said, now I'm going to tell you what you do. You go up to your room and you sew up that tear in your pants. That poor child had never had a needle or thread in her hand in her life. But she went up to her room. And the mother went up to check on the little girl and there in the little girl's room were those torn pants laying on the floor. But there was no sign of the little girl anywhere. So doing what any good mother would do, she went searching for her daughter. And she saw the light on in the basement. And she called down the basement stairs, Are you down there running around with your pants off? There was stone cold silence. And a deep voice says, no ma'am, I'm just reading the gas meter. That's embarrassment. Our text this morning comes from the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome in chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I am debtor, both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. And as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. When Paul penned the words of that text, he was contemplating a trip to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel of Christ in the capital city. When he wrote that letter, Christianity did not occupy the place in the world that it does now. In the mind of the ordinary Roman citizen, the Jew was almost regarded with contempt. And when the Christian was distinguished from the Jew, it was only for the Christian to be the subject of even more reproachful, derogatory terms than the Jews were. Some of the most eminent and some of the most well-informed writers in Rome of the first century speak of Christianity as a pernicious, detestable substitution or superstition. Paul had been subjected to many indignities. Paul had endured a lot of suffering to preach the gospel. His own nation had flung him aside. He had been cast out of Antioch of Pisidia. He had been stoned in the city of Lystra. He had been imprisoned in Philippi and in Thessalonica. He had been mocked by the philosophers in Athens. He had been persecuted in the city of Corinth. At Ephesus there had been a great mob that wanted to do him harm. But Paul was not ashamed of the gospel at Ephesus. And Paul wasn't going to be ashamed of the gospel in Rome either. If the gospel that told of Jesus Christ crucified, if it was a stumbling block to the Jew, it was indeed foolishness to the Greek and to the Roman also. But what Paul did was, Paul proudly proclaimed the message of the Nazarene in the city of Plato and Socrates. And now he's going to preach it in the city of Cicero and Seneca. Paul, he's already suffered a great deal for the gospel. But as you can read and hear in our text, he's looking forward with great anticipation to preaching in the city of Rome. Paul's words to the church at Rome my friends, those ought to be a real inspiration to us today. The same reasons that caused Paul to feel the way he did then should cause us to feel the same way right here, right now, in the 21st century. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed God's power unto salvation. Do you remember those immortal words of the hymn writer Catherine Hankey? I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I can say unequivocally with the Apostle Paul this morning, 
I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the Christ whom the gospel proclaims. I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And let's be honest with ourselves and let's be honest with each other. That's not a popular idea with a lot of people today. In fact, it reminds me of a story I came across not long ago about a young man that returned home from his first semester at college. And there was an elderly lady in the town that had taught him in Sunday school. And she invited him over since he was home for his first semester. She invited him over to her house for a meal. She knew he just loved chicken fried steak, mashed potatoes, and cream gravy. Who doesn't? And that's what she was going to fix for him. And so he's over there and she's cooking supper for him. And he tells her, he said, I haven't been at college long, but he, he had been there long enough for his professors to totally destroy his faith in God. And so while she's fixing supper, he felt like he needed to tell her that. And he said, you know, I once upon a time believed in God. But since I've studied science at the university... I'm convinced that God is nothing more than an empty word. She paused for a minute and she said, Well, I haven't studied science, but since you have, she held up an egg she was fixing to batter the steak with. Since you've studied science, maybe you can tell me where this egg came from. He said, Why, it came from a hen, of course. She said, well, where did the hen come from? He said, well, it hatched from an egg. And the lady said, well, then maybe you can tell me which existed first. He said, well, the hen. So you mean a hen existed that didn't come from an egg? No, 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 no. He said, I, I guess I should have said the egg was first. So you're going to tell me, young man, that an egg existed? That didn't come from a hen? He looked at her and he said, You're just getting me all confused. She smiled and said, Well, young man, since you can't explain the existence of even an egg without God, can you really expect me that you to expect you to explain the existence of the world without God? You see, that's the fallacy of this argument that God doesn't exist. When you see a watch, what do you know immediately? Have you ever taken a watch apart? All those little wheels and gears and springs and moving parts? When you see the existence of a watch, what do you know? That somewhere there was a watchmaker that made the watch. So it would all work together perfectly and orderly. When you see this world of ours working together and in perfect harmony, the seasons of the year, the rotation of the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything about it, it tells you that someone had to make it. And that someone was God. 
But you know the sad part is the existence of Jesus as the Son of God is especially unpopular with the, un, the enlightened and worldly folks of our land. It's certainly not something that our secularly progressive society finds appealing. And there are those in our world today that want to remove every vestige of God and every reference to Jesus Christ totally from our society and our national consciousness. But beloved... This is the claim that Jesus made for Himself. It was a claim that was made for Him by the writers of the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 8, Paul would write, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. What did he do, Paul? He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed to confess that I believe Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. It was foretold with the prophets of old. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says, Behold, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall bring forth a son. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we read of its fulfillment. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. But you know what? There are a lot of folks today a lot of religious people today who consider the idea of a virgin birth to be a crude, semi-pagan story. A crude, semi-pagan tale. I want to share with you some polls that I found that were taken among ministers. I found three polls of Christian ministers and pastors and priests. Some of them are a little bit old, but... They're the most recent ones I was able to find. One of these polls was conducted in 1998. And I can only imagine it's gotten worse since then. But this poll was a poll of 7,441 ministers in the United States. And it showed, depending upon what religious group that they were a part of, Anywhere from 19% to 60% did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There was another poll about 20 years ago of 103 ministers, Roman Catholic priests, Anglican priests, and Protestant ministers in the United Kingdom. 25% of them did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And then in 2002, there was a poll of 140 ministers of the Church of England. It found that 27% did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The pollsters reported one Hampshire vicar was typical. There was nothing special about his birth or his childhood. 
It was his adult life that was extraordinary. Now listen to this. I have a very traditional bishop. And this is one of those topics I do not go public on. I need to keep the job that I've got. Then there was another poll of ministers of the Church of Scotland. And it found that 37% did not believe in the virgin birth. And many folks believe that this virgin birth of Jesus Christ should be interpreted metaphorically rather than a description of an actual event that occurred. While there might be some in our day and time that are ashamed of this, I am not ashamed, nor embarrassed, nor do I feel like I am an ignoramus to say loudly and boldly, I believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of a virgin Jewish girl named Mary. I believe He performed all those miracles that are attributed to Him in the New Testament. I believe they all started at a marriage in Cana of Galilee where they ran out of wine. And Jesus turned ordinary water into wine at that marriage feast. I believe that Jesus made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see, and the dumb to speak. I believe He stood at the tomb of Lazarus and He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came walking out. I believe He fed the multitudes with five loaves and two fish. I believe He stilled the tempest. And John tells us in John chapter 20 the purpose of those miracles in verses 30 and 31. John says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written, why John? That you might believe. And believing you might have life through His name. I believe the moral and spiritual teachings of Jesus Christ are without parallel in all of history. Jesus never wrote a line except what He wrote on the ground when that poor woman was brought to Him that morning caught in adultery. But Jesus' words have continued. And the words of Jesus have brought more hope and more joy and more righteousness into this world than all the sayings of all the wise men of all the ages. The passing centuries have confirmed the words that Jesus taught. And I'm not ashamed of those words. And I'm not ashamed of the example that He set for us. He came and He brought us a new way of life. In that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 and verse 12, He said, Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. We call it the golden rule. As contrasted with the rule of iron or the rule of brass or the rule of silver. And it says in verse 29 of that 7th chapter of Matthew, when Jesus finished these sayings, they marveled at His words because Jesus taught as someone that had authority and not as the scribes. I'm like Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There are a lot of people that regard Jesus as a great teacher, a wonderful character. But beyond that, 
Jesus Christ is not really significant in their life. And they're even ashamed of His gospel. What is that gospel? That gospel is the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. Something to be preached to the whole world. It's the message of forgiveness of sins through faith in the crucified Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I'm not ashamed of the message of forgiveness of sin through the crucified Jesus. I'm also not ashamed of the remedy that the gospel offers for the sins of the world. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we're buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we'll also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that the old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. It was this gospel that in Acts 17 and verse 6 had literally turned the world upside down. I'm not ashamed of that. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel's hope for the future. You see, if the gospel of Jesus Christ represented a losing cause instead of the only cause that's going to conquer we should be ashamed of it but through the years since Jesus came forth from the grave we've seen kingdoms rise and fall and vanish forever and the church goes on from age to age because we know the gospel of Jesus Christ has in it the invincible power of God. It's this gospel that gives us hope for individuals. That Paul, as he's nearing the end of his life, could write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Why not, Paul? For I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul's in a dungeon. He's in prison. He knows that his time is short. 
And as he brings that last letter to a close, he says, I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The God, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, and not me only. Well, who's going to get it, Paul? All of them that love His appearing. When Paul wrote the words to our text, the gospel was then, it is now. The power of God unto salvation when its terms and conditions are met. It totally changes the life of those who obey it and live God's kind of life. What did the writer of Hebrews say about Jesus in Hebrews 5 verse 9? And being made complete, He became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. Now here's the question. What effect is the gospel of Jesus Christ having on you? What effect is it having on your life, on your home? You see, if Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life, I've said this before probably a thousand times. There's probably be a thousand and one. If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if there are changes you need to be making. I don't know if, that, if there's something going on you need help with. I don't know if there's something we can help you with. But if there's some change that you need to make in your life, something we can help you with, this is your opportunity to let that be made known as together we stand and while we sing.